Enjoy the Game by Lionel Burney Chapter 15 Big George and Little Mo If Graham Taylor had got his way, he would have replaced Luther and Ross with Gary Lineker and Mick Harford. Lineker had been the top scorer in the second division, but the Leicester manager, Gordon Milne, said he was not for sale at any price. Ron Saunders at Birmingham told Taylor he could have Harford if he handed over the million pounds Watford had just got for Blissett. Everyone knew we had this money, which did make things more complicated, says Taylor. I did think Lineker and Harford would work very well together, but I wasn't going to spend a million pounds all in one go, so I quickly realised we weren't going to get them. Taylor turned his attention to Kerry Dixon, who was scoring loads of goals for Reading in the third division, but he went to Chelsea instead. Michael Robinson of Brighton was also mentioned, but he wanted £800 a week, which put him well outside Watford's reach. George Riley was born in Bells Hill in Lanarkshire, birthplace of Sir Matt Busby, and the backyard for a lot of the game's greats. When Riley was three, his father got a job at the steelworks in Corby, so the family moved south of the border to Cambridgeshire. As a child, he was not a bad boy, but if there was trouble, it would find him, and like a lot of kids, he was often getting into scraps. When I was a lad, someone hit me, and I ran into my mother's crying, and she said, Don't you come in here crying, hit him back. Riley's mother also told him to look after those more vulnerable than he was, and he often found he was sticking up for others against the bullies. He grew tall and thin, so when George began to play football he was always stuck up front because of his height. When he left school he played as a centre-forward for Corby Town in the Southern League and started working on the building sites. Northampton Town spotted him, and when he was 17 he joined them. By now he was six foot four inches tall and a target for opposition players to take out. Because of his height, he got a rough deal from referees who offered little protection, figuring the big man could handle himself. In a match at Bradford City, he had his front teeth knocked out by Steve Baines. I was on my hands and knees, looking for my teeth in the mud, and the ref gave a free kick against me. Later on, I dropped the guy who'd done it, just knocked him to the floor when the ref wasn't looking. I didn't like doing it, but I was running round with my teeth in my hand, and no one else was going to look after me. By the time he was 21, Riley was Northampton's captain and was as comfortable at centre-half as he was up front. In 1979, he joined Cambridge United, who were in the second division. Four years later, he was voted player of the season and was Cambridge's PFA representative, but he still hadn't had a pay rise. A string of broken promises pushed him to the brink. My mates standing on the terraces were earning more than me from laying bricks. I said to Cambridge, they should have been paying me two wages because I was scoring at one end and heading it out at the other. All I wanted was to be on the same as the other senior players there. We were talking about an extra 40 quid to put me on 320 quid a week. Eventually the manager said they couldn't afford it, so I told them they'd better find another centre-forward. I walked out, went on strike and trained on my own. Two weeks later, Graham Taylor called and said Cambridge had agreed to sell him. Riley says, I went to see him in his office and Graham had this big chair and I was on this little one. I knew the psychology of it and I asked for a proper chair. I said, 
If we're going to talk about this seriously, I'm not sitting down there. He smiled, but I did get a proper chair and 600 quid a week. The new season was about to start. Watford paid Cambridge £90,000, less than a tenth of the money they'd received from Milan. The supporters were underwhelmed. Riley had not even played in the first division. Riley's first training session was a practice match at Vicarage Road between the first team and the reserves. I'd been training on my own for a few weeks, and although I was reasonably fit, I'd missed the serious pre-season work. I also had glass ankles, and when I wasn't fully fit, I seemed to go over on them, and that's what happened. I knew it was a bad one, and I stayed down. Graham was sitting in the stand with this loudspeaker, and he called out, Riley, we don't send the trainer on the field during practice matches at this club. Get up. My ankle was already swelling up, and after a couple of minutes he realised I had to come off. After missing the opening game of the season against Coventry, Riley was given a pain-killing injection of cortisone so he could play the next one against Ipswich. I shouldn't have played. My ankle was still swollen, but because of the injection I couldn't feel anything, so I wedged my foot into a boot and got on with it. I'd never had an injection before and I wasn't too keen, but I didn't say anything. I made my debut against Terry Butcher, the England centre-half. The cortisone wore off and my ankle was even worse. It wasn't ideal. The next game, up at Birmingham, was awful. At half-time, Graham was pretty angry, and the teapot and all the cups went flying. We got splashed with tea, and the vein in Graham's temple was going. I thought, what have I let myself in for here? Although he scored against Notts County, Riley took a while to settle, and the fans were not convinced. They booed him during a 3-1 defeat at home to Norwich. It was difficult because I was replacing a legend, Ross Jenkins, and I wasn't as fit as Graham wanted me to be, so it took time. A twenty-year-old striker at Partick Thistle called Morris Johnston was attracting attention for a number of reasons. He was as lively off the pitch as he was on it. Jimmy McGuigan, one of Graham Taylor's managers at Grimsby Town, was Scottish and scouted north of the border, and he raved about Johnston. He was a goalscorer, pure and simple, and he had a knack of staying off a defender's radar until it was too late. Taylor's initial reservation was that Johnston was scoring goals in the second tier of Scottish football. It was a mighty step up from there to the English First Division, but he sent Steve Harrison to take a look. Harrison put his suit on and flew to Scotland to see Partick play at Clyde. When he arrived at the airport in Glasgow, he asked a taxi driver to take him to Clyde's ground. "'Are you sure?' asked the taxi driver. As they passed through the outskirts of Glasgow, Harrison said, it's a bit rough round here, isn't it? This is Hollywood, compared to where you're going. The taxi driver stopped about half a mile from Clyde's Shawfield Ground, an old Greyhound stadium, and said, You're on your own from here. Harrison dropped into a pub opposite the ground called the Wee Mill. Heads turned and eyes stared. In his suit and tie he looked like an insurance salesman, or worse, an undercover policeman. During the game, Johnston was the brightest thing on the pitch, not just because of his bleached blonde highlights, either. Clyde's defenders were always two steps behind him. The problem was, so were some of his own teammates. Johnston would make darting little runs that had the defence at his mercy, but the ball wouldn't come. He wasn't too keen on tracking back, either. He was a cracking little player, but I wasn't sure he had enough discipline about him, says Harrison. After the game, he had to go back to the pub to phone for a taxi. He ordered a drink 
and got chatting with the locals. Who were you watching? Was it that wee bugger Morris? Someone asked. He's a lively player. Oh, aye, he's lively, all right. He'll not be there long. Someone will take a gamble on him, and he'll score them a bundle of goals. Watford's game against West Ham in late October was moved to Friday night so it could be shown live on television. But the BBC's engineers went on strike. However, it did give Graham Taylor a free Saturday to see Johnston for himself. McGuigan had been persistent. By now, some other clubs, Rangers and Celtic, Everton, Arsenal and Tottenham, were also rumoured to be interested. So Taylor and his wife drove to Glasgow and saw Partick play against Airdrieonians. Within 15 minutes I knew I had to sign him, says Taylor. Negotiations with Partick took a couple of weeks. Johnston was in East Germany with the Scotland under-21 squad when Peter McCormack, Partick's manager, rang him to say they'd accepted a bid from Watford. Johnston wasn't convinced and wanted to wait for one of the bigger clubs to make a move. When we met, Graham Taylor sold the club to me, he says. He was very businesslike and down-to-earth, but I had a passion for his club, and he was so driven. Elton John spoke to me as well and said he'd love me to join. I'm not sure how much Elton really knew about me, but he made me feel like he did. What swung it for Johnston was Taylor's impassioned speech about forward play and goal-scoring. He talked about the two wingers, Barnes and Callaghan, and the way he hoped Johnston and Riley would work together. Johnston sensed goals. Johnston arrived, larger than life, all highlights, pink jumper and leather trousers. He came with a swagger and an air of confidence, the lad about town. His debut, a 4-1 defeat at Manchester United, might have dimmed the optimism of a lesser player. I played shite and thought to myself, it's not going to be easy down here. But the thing about Johnston was that the following Monday morning he walked in for training just as sure of himself. Morris was different to every other player at Watford, says Harrison, and the way Graham handled him was a great lesson to me. He was a lovely lad. He had a cheeky smile and you couldn't fall out with him. But he was always in bother. Unlike most of the lads, he was a crap trainer. Until we came to shooting practice. And then he would be so good you couldn't argue with him. He was fit and sharp because he needed to be to get into the positions to score, but he wasn't interested in anything that didn't involve scoring. Taylor used to run through set-piece and corner routines until the players could do them in their sleep. Every moment was planned. He used to put everyone in their set positions, says Harrison. George, you go there. Wilf at the far post. Les on the edge of the box. Whatever it was. We were running through it, and he let Morris be. What about Morris? Harrison asked Taylor. I don't need to tell him, he just knows. Let him get on with it and watch what he does. So, they took their positions for the corner and Morris went and stood in front of the keeper. Then, as the ball came in, he peeled away, ran round in a loop and when it got flicked on, he was unmarked at the far post to stab it into the net, says Harrison. Harrison had a word with Johnston. Talk me through that corner routine. What did you do? What? Well, where did you go? What were you doing there? Talk me through it. Er, uh, well, I just sort of... I don't know. I just kind of peeled off the keeper and stuck it in the net. Morris didn't think. He didn't need to. It was just instinctive, Harrison says. He didn't plan what he was going to do. 
He had this knack of getting free and being in the right place. He got so many goals like that. Graham recognised that and realised it was pointless giving him a specific role and telling him where to run or where to stand because it would have killed that instinct. Morris wouldn't have done what he was told, anyway. Stuck in the relegation zone without a win in nine and with Christmas approaching, people were getting worried. Watford were a young side and the defence was leaking. With so many goals going against them, there was the danger enough water would come over the sides to sink them. They needed someone to start bailing. At Molyneux against Wolves, Johnston and Riley clicked. In the space of nine first-half minutes, Johnston scored his first three goals for the club. Riley added two more, his first goals since the Notts County game, before being substituted. As he left the pitch, Riley asked why he was being taken off. Taylor said, I can't have two players in my team scoring hat-tricks. If the supporters were still undecided about Riley, the home game against Nottingham Forest got them on side. I was up against Paul Fairclough, and we'd already had a go at each other in the first half and got booked, he says. The pitch was soaking wet. Fairclough was over on the wing near the benches and he was about to play the ball up the line. I decided to go for it, so I ran a long way and slid in, but I was horribly late. It was a terrible challenge. I got there about a minute after the ball had gone, went straight through Fairclough and kept sliding into the forest bench. Cluffy was up on his feet, shouting, Referee, this young man should be sent off. Their sponge man was on top of me. He had me round the neck, holding me down. I got sent off, but I'd already scored, and at least it showed the fans I was giving it my all. Johnston and Riley stuck up a classic big-man-little-man partnership on and off the pitch. They terrorised defences together, then hit the snooker club and the night spots together. More often than not, Riley took the role of Moe's minder. He'd say to me, Hey, big man, I'm getting kicked all over the pitch here, says Riley. So we'd swap over for a bit, and I'd give them some back. They'd go to Bailey's in Watford or the Middlesex and Hearts Club in Old Reading on a Saturday night. Sometimes they'd go into London to meet up with Arsenal's Charlie Nicholas, who Johnston knew from Glasgow. I've lost count of the number of scraps I got those two out of, says Riley. They'd be sitting on the bar in their leather trousers and security would come over and say, Excuse me, can you get down? Charlie would say, Do you know who I am? Mo had a bit of that attitude as well. They spoke out to the wrong sort of people. It was difficult to keep Morris out of trouble sometimes. He could be very cutting to people at times and he'd stand there with his feet apart and his arms wide ready for it to kick off. But when it does, it's always the big guy who gets it. Johnston had an eye for the ladies, too. Up in Scotland, he'd been going out with the daughter of a Glasgow gangster, but he lived the single life down south. When he first moved to Watford, he lived at the Labrook Hotel. His teammates joked that he ought to have a revolving door fitted to his room. Sometimes the club would get a call from an angry father, but Johnston always had such an innocent face when Taylor put the accusations to him. Not me, boss. I don't know her. Taylor used to know the landlords and the owners of the clubs. Back in the day, he would occasionally pop up to Bailey's to have a look at the guest book. Sometimes he caught one of his players red-handed, like the time he saw Trevor Howe had signed in under his own name. His spies used to ring Taylor to let him know who was doing what. Taylor would make sure he got the little details so he could call a player's bluff. 
Once in a while I'd hear they'd been out of order, and I'd call them in, says Taylor. Enjoy yourselves at the Middlesex and Hearts last night, lads, he'd say. No, not me, boss. I was at home, Johnston would reply. What about you, George? No, boss. What about the girls you met? We weren't there, boss, I swear. Morris, you know that little alcove round the corner from the bar, Taylor would say. Well, you can sit there and see in the mirror everyone who comes in. I know you were there in your white leather suit. Come on, son. That's what women wear. All I'm saying is, be careful. When Riley bought a house in Hemel Hempstead, he moved out of the club-owned little flat above a shop round the corner from Vicarage Road, and Johnston moved in. After training, they'd go to play snooker for a few hours and sink a few pints. We stuck to the rules, says Riley. We never went out on a Thursday or a Friday. But you had a lot of time on your hands, even with the training we did. Sometimes we overdid it, had seven or eight pints over six hours and woke up with a sore head. But if Graham knew you'd been drinking, he'd make the sessions even harder, and we'd be up and down the terraces or doing the twelve-minute run. Looking back, maybe it wasn't the most professional way to be. But you'd train and sweat it out. Johnston could stay up all night and still stick them away in training. I was never late, and I had no problem training. Maybe he wasn't late, but he sometimes arrived in a state. One morning, he turned up at training in his white triumph stack, still pissed, in his white leather suit and the gold earring, says Harrison. Tom Wally and I spotted him and decided to keep him away from the gaffer. We held him up in a cold shower and Tom said, don't say anything to the top man. We got him through the training session. He was just going through the motions until the shooting practice. You could still smell the booze on him, but he was firing them in. Give me another one, Harry. That's England nil, Scotland ten. We gave him a lift home and went to see the boss. Training go okay, did it? asked Taylor. Yes, fine, gaffer, said Harrison. Ran through everything like we said, did you? No problems. It was a good session. Sorted Morris out then, did you? Graham didn't miss much, says John Ward. At that time, he had Nigel Callaghan and John Barnes, who liked a Wendy burger, and Morris and George, who liked a drink. Morris could be out until five in the morning and get on with it, but George tried to keep up and he couldn't handle it like Morris. Working with young people, you have these things to deal with. I thought we'd seen everything but Morris was good at coming up with something new. It wasn't long before the rest of the players were going out with them, and that's when Taylor had to face a dilemma. Steve Sims said Morris was a bad influence on the lads, but these lads needed to get out, says Riley. They were young boys, but it was all football, football, football. Graham wanted his players to meet someone, get married and settle down. I liked managing Morris, says Taylor. Sometimes it can get quite boring, if you've got all good chaps. But the problem came because some of the others would have seen what Morris was getting away with. Morris carried no weight. He was lean and he could drink and didn't put on weight. He turned up on time and he did the work and he certainly did what was required on the pitch. So what do you do? In January 1984, just after New Year, when players might have been tempted to overindulge, Taylor took his squad to a gym off Tottenham Court Road in London for a series of physical tests. This was the dawn of sports science. 
The players were rigged up to machines to measure their heart rate and lung capacity and endurance as they ran on a treadmill. At the end, the doctor said to Taylor, I have to tell you that one of your players is still quite intoxicated. Who is it? It's uh, Mr. Johnston. Right. Well, how has he done in the tests? That's the funny thing. He's not been out of the top three in every test we've done. The 24 goals Johnson scored in 35 games was enough to persuade Taylor to turn a blind eye. For a short time, the partnership between Johnston and Riley was white-hot. But like many things that blaze so fiercely, it burned itself out a little too quickly. End of chapter 15 Next time, The Yellow Brick Road to Wembley Graham Taylor tells Elton John to keep FA Cup final day free. <laughs>